Welcome to the latest session of Randos Read. Tonight we've got four randos reading Atlas Shrugged. We're on part one, chapter three, the top and the bottom. And uh, the saga continues with us trying to piece together this mystery as it unfolds. Uh, this time we've got Jim Taggart, the brother, Oren Boyle, Paul Larkin, the uh, Weasley guy in the last last uh, scene, and Wesley Mooch or Mouch, Mooch, I don't know. Uh, I was like, Mouch. Is it Mouch? Okay. Yeah, yeah, the guy reading the book, uh, the original reader, he, he said Mooch, but pff, I don't know. What does he know? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, it was recorded long enough ago. There were probably, the, the estate was probably involved. Maybe she was involved. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise that me Christopher if you find the pronunciation guide buried in her journals somewhere, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Mooch On the other hand, funny. you know, death of the author, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's out of her hands. Um, anyway, so these guys are meeting. And um, the fun thing, uh, the reference in the top and the bottom is that here they are on the top of the world in the most expensive bar in, I think, New York City. And it feels like a basement on the top of a skyscraper. And uh, the whole uh, the chapter closes with people meeting in a cafeteria in a basement underneath the city. And uh, each of them feels like the opposite. Uh, the top feels like a basement. The bottom is light and airy and wonderful. And uh, clearly, the uh, the the concrete of this of this title is referring to those and their juxta- juxtaposition. Well, and, that's half of what it's referring to. Yeah, that's there's, the concrete, not the abstract. Well, yeah, there, there's a pair of inversions going on here. Right there, there's the um, the physical location versus the appearance, or what you could call, you know, the the appearance versus the reality. Um, on the <coughs> physical level, and there's an appearance versus a reality, um, on what I guess what you, you call, call it, the, the spiritual moral, level, the spiritual moral. or the moral yeah. level, because like the four men. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter are, um, you know, by, uh, by appearance and position, they are, you know, top of the world types, right? You know, they're, you know, CEOs of uh, major companies. Um, you know, they're, they are connected, you know, they get, uh, you know, industrial efficiency awards from major magazines. You know, these guys are the movers and shakers, the, uh, the ones who make everything possible. Uh, you know, by their, uh, their own estimation and by Jim's own statement and the, uh, mm-hmm. the people, you know, who are meeting, um, in the cafeteria in the basement are, um, lowly workers, lowly workers and mid middle management and, uh, and workers, nameless workers. Yeah. Yes. Now, what we can say about their moral status at this point is ambiguous at best, but. Yeah, but we are being given a lot of clues. Uh, the people, uh, the movers and shakers on top of the world are, I don't know, shiftless, a little bit weaselly, speaking vaguely, uh, doing, <clears throat> doing shenanigans. They definitely maneuvering politically to do things that are um, not the best. Well, and talking uh, and, the and same way. Yeah, they don't the, speak clearly. Yeah, the, it, 
talking the same way the board of directors of Taggart Transcontinental talks. You know, it's like they're they're having a different conversation on the surface than the one they're really having. Yes. Uh, and, and in contrast, uh, uh, the discussion in the basement is is very clear, concrete. They um, the purpose of it is like, why are they doing it? It's like, oh, maybe it's not always that clear. But well, um, I mean, I think sort of the the purpose. Eddie's purpose is pretty clear. He's venting. Yeah, yeah, you know, he, he's venting I, to I, what I he considers admit, an, an appreciative audience. Like corporate espionage. When I when I read it, I was like, yeah, corporate espionage. This guy's getting a, a nice ear uh, from someone who's willing to listen, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. I have to note. Um, I, I tossed a highlight in uh, when uh, Oren Boyle was talking about why nobody can get iron ore anymore, and he has this long litany: you know, natural exhaustion of the mines, wearing out of equipment, shortages of materials, difficulties of transportation, other unavoidable conditions, and. Yeah. The first thing that popped into my head is supply chain issues. Supply chain issues. Yeah. But it's the standard, uh, it's like the, the excuse um, rant from uh, the Blues Brothers. It was dark out. The sun was in my eyes. There were children. You know, it, it, it's always something. I didn't and, do uh, it. Nobody saw me. You can't prove anything. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. Well, it was just, also it, it just of kind this... of struck me, you know, you know, Rand often gets criticized for, you know, in effect, uh, you know, not being realistic. And I was, you know, just struck by how naturally the phrase supply chain issues would have fit into this litany. Yeah. But, you know, and actually, what, I was thinking from the, the same modern thing. headlines. And these drop it right in. These sleazy discussions that work on two levels, we know that is exactly how things get done in the world right now. We, uh, all of so much of the horrible stuff going down is this kind of maneuvering. So it, it doesn't feel all that unreal at all. It's a bit stylized, but that's, that's about it. Uh, or maybe, uh, maybe it's, um, she's, she is drawing bigger contrasts than might exist in any given individual, mm. but it's not unreal. Yeah. I mean, a little later on that same page, uh, this may be a little unjust, but, uh, you know, when she describes how Oren Boyle appeared from nowhere, starting out with $100,000 on his own and a $200 million yeah. loan from the government, you know, my, my uh, note there is uh, Elon Musk. Yeah, um, Musk <laughs> did uh, enjoy some benefits from the uh, various programs for green stuff. Still has. Yeah, yeah, uh, so... Yeah, you know, didn't he get his start on PayPal? Yeah, he was a original pay PayPal mafia. Yeah, that's why I say it's a bit unjust. You know, I think it, Musk is a much more mixed but, case. There's a lot of genuine productive talent there. Yeah, if you listen to his uh, the, the the biography that was just put out on him, that is definitely not um, significant in his rise. It, it he's he's a freaking titan. He's he's one of those. Yeah, but so he's just still, leveraging, I, I, guess, I think, what he, very he could get his hands on. You know, comparatively speaking, I mean, he's, yeah, well, he's he's not a capitalist. He's more normal on that front. Uh, a capitalist in the sense we would talk about one. Mm -hmm. 
he's a businessman. Um, very typical that way. Um, so the uh, oh, on that front, in that discussion, one of the one of the earlier lines involved saying, you know, you can't have uh, somebody having a monopoly on you know natural resources like that. Hank having gotten a uh, his uh, did vertical integration basically and got it got his own ore mine so he wouldn't be messed with. Uh, but then they turn right around and are maneuvering to create a monopoly on those things to have centralized control of them. So, okay. Yes, but if the government does it, it's not a monopoly. Don't you know yeah, that? Yeah, that's totally different. Yeah. Because well, none because of the, the, none of the, the government is The government's allegedly not selfishly motivated. Um, no. It's not about money. It's about uh, your fellow human beings. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the things that struck me there was the... Um, <laughs> you know, just sort of lumping in the business infrastructure that Reardon built, you know, developing, you know, his ore mines, um, you know, with, you know, it's like they view that as, in effect, a natural resource. That's kind of funny. They can't distinguish. Well, yeah. well it, it's not, fun, you know, it, I think it's, it's quite, uh, uh, quite deliberate funny in a tragic way that yeah. way. And if you remember from the previous chapter, uh, you know, when Reardon bought those mines, you know, everybody was saying, been played out. You know, he's crazy. You, you know, the, the historical cycle is running down. You're going to see the spectacular end of the spectacular Henry Reardon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, the idea that he might actually have done something, you know, that resulted in Reardon Orr being a, you know, successful, profitable, productive company, as opposed to just, you know, oh, it's a natural resource, is just completely outside, well, think about it, outside their wheelhouse. That's, that's very, uh, Reardon's approach to the mines is very similar to Alice Wyatt's approach to the oil fields. Both uh, natural resources had been played out, but somehow these people figured out there was a way to make them productive again. Productive again. Yeah, there's. Yeah, I, I had another point about Wyatt that we can get to. I think a little later. Um, yeah. Let's see. Um, okay. So core questions for this first section, just to kind of pull Diana's. Wonderful work in. Uh, all right, so we've got Taggart, Boyle, Larkin, and Mooch or Mouch uh, meeting to make some kind of deal, talking on two levels. And uh, then they discuss the uh, San Sebastian mines. So what schemes do um, Jim and Boyle agree to enact? And, and, uh, and why aren't they speaking openly? Yeah, I mean, scheme-wise, um... Based on what we see in this chapter, it seems pretty clear that, um, you know, Taggart wants something to deal with his competition problem in Colorado with the Phoenix Durango. Um, and Boyle wants access to Reardon's iron ore. Mm -hmm. Oh, and uh, what moral claims do they use to justify their plans? Well, the fact that uh, the, the, the justification for private property is public good. And 
the interesting thing here for me is if you remember, Teddy Roosevelt made a speech uh, in Kansas, uh, I think during his bull moose run, uh, where he basically made that same exact claim. And I find it of interest that a hundred years later, Obama goes to the same place and makes the same claim. So the people, conservatives, who, who like to claim that, that Rand was talking you know, out of the lower portion of her anatomy in, in terms of uh, exaggerating the, the way people in the United States were looking at things in regard to capitalism, obviously had forgotten that uh, Teddy, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt made that and many other such claims in that speech. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Rand could have cribbed this series of dialogues from that speech. I don't I, I think you're no. giving too much credit to the conservatives there. I think they're quite well aware, you know, of, uh, you know, the fact that uh, old TR, you know, and his, um, you know, spiritual uh, fellow travelers uh, hold that view. They just, in effect, don't want to acknowledge the criticism because they share that view. That's entirely possible, yes. I mean... There's me giving the benefit of the doubt when I probably yeah, shouldn't. I mean, I I am personally the, of the opinion that uh, Theodore Roosevelt may be the worst president in uh, sort of American history. I don't know. That's a tight competition there. What he enabled. <laughs> well, you got Woodrow Wilson. FDR. I mean, the argument could be that Teddy Roosevelt made Woodrow Wilson possible. Well, the crux of my argument is that at the time that Teddy Roosevelt took office, there were a lot of uh, very active political debates about the proper scope and function and purpose of government and, you know, the nature of, you know, capitalism and the market and economic freedom, uh, nature of political freedom, you know, what American foreign and domestic policy should look like. And by the end of Roosevelt's uh, time in office, basically every one of those political debates had been fundamentally resolved in a way that we would consider bad and yeah the progressives and yeah. basically everything that followed in the 20th century that we point at and say you know this this is bad you go back and say where did those seeds germinate they germinated during teddy roosevelt's presidential administration he's the one who set the arc he was the turning point and because of that he gets a share of the responsibility for everything, you know, every, every vile piece of fruit that grew out of the tree that he planted. Hmm. Now, he was not alone in planting trees, however. He did have a number of yeah. fellow travelers that were planting trees oh, sure. in other I mean, he areas. Didn't, he didn't do it all by himself, but he was the president. And the question was, worst president. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, well, yes. In terms of in terms of being the origin point, I think you're correct. Now, this is similar to the argument we had last week about Kant versus yeah. Marx or Hitler. Yeah, hmm. it, uh, it's like you know we you know, objectivist historiography gives primacy to the role of ideas, 
And what Teddy Roosevelt did was he took the sort of the abstract ideas that had been imported from Germany and he made them uh, politically dominant in the United States. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also caveat that with the fact that as a matter of general principle, I don't consider any president uh, who's been in office within the last 20 years or so um, as being eligible for evaluation on a, a best or worst scale, because I don't think enough time has passed for the full fruits of their time in office to be known. Mm. There. No, but I think there are hints. There are certain you can certainly look and say, "Well, that this guy's not trending very well." Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, But I've uh, I've held that view for uh, for quite some time. That you just it it takes time before you can make a a proper full evaluation. In the same sort of way that it would be very difficult to have evaluated Teddy Roosevelt as a president in 1912. Hmm. Yeah, you're probably right about that. I, because uh, obviously as we look back, we see the longer, the longer historical, historical consequences, view. but it takes time for those to develop. Now, I think there are instances where well, I guess you're looking at 20 years. Um, two of the three legs of Islamic of Islamic terrorism were were essentially sanctioned by Jimmy Carter. He's the one that got uh, Ayatollah Khomeini into uh, his position in Iraq. Excuse me, Iran. And at a point in time in which Israel actually could have completely destroyed the PLO. Jimmy Carter used American tri uh, American ships to evacuate them to, uh, I think it was Tunis, across the Mediterranean. So I, I think you can look at that and within 20 years see that it had borne fruit of a very nasty yeah. type. I mean, I think Rand had you know, said pretty much at the time that this is going to be bearing very nasty fruit for decades to come. Um, you know, the, uh, I think the point though, is that you can certainly look at that and say, that is a very bad thing that Carter did, and it's going to have bad long-term consequences, but it's not the only thing that Carter did. And you don't evaluate a president based on any one thing that they did. You evaluate them based on sort of the overall package. I think we can look back, um, historically and say that um, the way that Ronald Reagan imported religion into Republican politics has been bearing very bad fruit you know, in mm -hmm. the time since his administration. Um, and, you know, I know Rand condemned him pretty roundly over that. And, you know, there were a lot of other things about Reagan that I liked. I really don't like that. And, you know, I'm sad to say that it seems like a lot of the other things that he did are not lasting. And that one is. Yes. What's, hmm. the, what's, the, what's the quote? Um, the good that men do 
perish uh, perish in the grave with them while the evil they do outlives yeah, them, something the, like the, that. The evil men do outlives them while the good is often teared with their bones. Yeah. I believe <laughs> is the line. I don't remember who said it, but... Uh... Oh, and see, if, it, if we're talking about Carter as an instance, there's two things that he did that I agreed with entirely, and that was the deregulation of the trucking and the airline industry. Yeah, those were both good. So... Yeah. Okay, so... Let's see. Uh, how about why is it's uh, Jim... uh, it's a quote from Mark Antony? Uh, oh, really? Take, oh, in, in uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's um, play Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Damn. Yeah. I knew I'd heard it somewhere. I just couldn't remember where I heard it from. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury <laughs> Caesar, not to praise him. Hmm. Yes, and as 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 uh, Richard Armour said, but what he actually did was a very good job of burying Brutus. <laughs> uh, dude could really turn a phrase. Damn. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You read Shakespeare, and it's full of cliches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same with the Bible. They, they yeah. both seem to have so many cliches in them. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so, why is Jim in that in that conversation? Why is he so concerned about the San Sebastian mines? What does Boyle tell him that eases his mind, and what does Boyle tell him that disturbs him? He's, well, the thing that he tells him that eases his mind is that he uh, he he had dined with the top boys, and he told him that uh, there was no no issue there. Never seen a more busy place. Uh huh. That's right. I don't know what they're doing, but they, were, the they were all doing it. Yeah, I couldn't understand yeah. that uh, slur name for somebody, what he was saying, but man, they were busy. Uh huh. And the other thing that disturbed him was the fact that uh, there was a wood burning uh, locomotive <laughs> on the. Uh... Yeah, it's like, he was like, wait, what did you just say? And then he kind of withdrew, uh, withdrew from the conversation. It was just like, yeah, then uh, storming into see Dagny later. What's this about the, <laughs> the gear you have there? Yeah. yeah. It's also pretty typical of these guys that the the thing that reassures him is all about reports of things that other people have said and the thing yes. that makes him flip his lid is an identification of an incontrovertible fact hmm. well now he gets to flip his lid twice at the first presentation and, the, and then at the explanation for it yeah, I, I also enjoyed how she's like, well, you know, if you read any of the reports I've been sending you, they like I said this over and over. I told you exactly what I was doing and why. I find it kind of amusing that, you know, it looks like, you know, the uh, the government of Mexico is basically getting ready to do to these guys what they are getting ready to do to um, uh, Reardon and the Phoenix Durango. Yeah. Live by the sword, die by the sword. It's probably one of those cliches from one of those two books. Uh, authors, whatever. <laughs> Works. 
Actually, I think it comes from the Bible, but I don't remember. I, I can't sure. either, but it's a cliche, so it's probably from one of those two. He, yeah, he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. I think it's New Testament, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It now sounds I'm more Old testament to me, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see, hold on. Well, it's in the Gospel of Matthew. Live by the sword, die by the sword is a proverb in the form of a parallel phrase derived from the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, the New Testament, I always thought, was more turn the other cheek, but... Uh... Well, let me give you some more context. Then Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Ah, ah. Okay. It fits. All right. So let's see. Um, we've talked about most of these yeah. things that she brought up. We can move on to the next section. Well, I mean, there, there is... She there is the question of, you know, why are they being so talk aroundy about what they're yeah, doing? Why can't they just say, why can't they just doing? say what, they're what they're doing? It. It's like, why, why doesn't, you know, Jim why just say, you know, Hey, Hey, Oren, can you talk to some of your friends in the uh, national association of railroads and get them to put a choke collar on this Phoenix Durango thing? Uh, if you yeah. do, I can, uh, you know, probably uh, talk to some of my friends and help push through that um, equalization of opportunity bill that you're uh, you're so interested in. Yeah, uh, but instead of that, they don't talk about what they really want, and instead they talk about bullshit moral principles that are justifying the maneuvering they're doing. So I think they're just evading the reality of what they're doing, which is horrible, and trying to make it feel good. So they're they're trying to sort of square the circle between, you know, the public good rhetoric that they use to justify what they're doing to others, you know, and to themselves, you know, with the knowledge internally that they're doing this for their own benefit. Yeah, yeah which is a violation of the... Uh which is a violation of what they're using as the excuse to go after the other people who make no bones about the fact they're doing it for their own benefit. Yeah. So, yeah, just, um, yeah, evasion. It's, it's to help them fool themselves as well as anybody else, but they're not, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, that's point. kind of the weird thing is that, I mean, at some level they, they obviously know what they just agreed to do. Mm-hmm. So how are they? But it's in the public interest, you know. How how are they concealing it from themselves? They know. I I don't think they are. Um, uh, may or maybe, uh, you know, people are complex. I guess uh, maybe they're concealing it from parts of themselves. It's that. It's that. This is always the the weirdness that you get with evasion. Is that you know bizarre? You know, you know, and yet you don't know. Yeah. And. Uh, you know, yeah. Well, it's 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 compartmentalization. And uh, I guess for people that aren't so horrible, when it reaches a certain level, you shy away from it. It's like, no, I can't. I can't tell myself this is good. Yeah. I mean, okay. One thought there is they have to have sort of this conversation because part of what they're doing is they're reassuring each other, you know, of sort of their public face, you know, the idea that, you know, Jim is like, you know, if I don't, 
if I'm not clear about what I'm doing and Boyle goes along with it, you know, then, you know, that is, uh, you know, in some sense, a sign that, uh, you know, what he is doing is actually making the facts go away. Yeah. Hey, well, look at in this. other words, if you talk around it long enough, it'll it's just not somehow real. come to a. But but yet they're counting on it being real. Mm-hmm. So you're you're still back at you know you know a being non a. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point. Hey, uh, Chris Land, I see is in the chat. Whoa. Oh, well, let's give him a voice. He's he's uh, rated for this. and like to speak. If you want to talk, Chris, <clears throat> jump on in. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, no. Now we'll be five randos. It's five randos for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right. So the next section, maybe we can move on here. Uh, oh. Chris Land, here, let me give you another invitation to speak if you want. Okay. Chris, welcome. Hello. Uh, yeah, I was going to wonder how long you were going to evade that I had joined. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So I recognize some voices here. Is this the, the same group as before? It's pretty much, yeah. yeah. Oh, great. All right. Yeah, I just yeah. happened to see this, and I said, well, okay, I, I'm in the car. I can join. <laughs> Perfect. So. Yeah, All right. Cool. So, uh, proceeding on, uh, just uh, jump in if you need to. Uh, section two, uh, flashback reveals uh, Jim and Dagny's history at Taggart uh, Transcontinental, particularly how Dagny rose in the company and then built Jim's San Sebastian line. Now, Jim confronts Dagny about the poor train service on that line. As she leaves the office, Dagny reflects on uh, the life of Nat Taggart, Nat Taggart and converses with a newsstand owner. So, uh, core questions. What's the basic history of the San Sebastian line? Why did Dagny oppose it? How did Jim convince the board directors to approve it? Why did Dagny build it? Well, okay, so in order, uh, we, we kind of touched on it earlier, but the fact is, is that they were looking entirely second-handedly uh, at uh, Dan Konya's previous accomplishments and just assumed that those accomplishments would continue and that all they had to do was ride along with them and they would also receive the benefits of what he was Without doing. Ever he's got to skin in the game. What he was doing. Yeah, he's got skin in the yeah. game. He's never failed and we can't lose by following him. Yep. Now, Dagny was opposed to it because even though she was too junior to... Uh, make any difference she was opposed to it because there were no facts in the case it was all personalities and she kind of there's no mineralogical fact had some background nothing that of that nature he was uh, uh he was looking like a louse a uh, playboy which didn't impress oh, yes her. but we don't know that yet i thought she brought that in a little bit uh, no okay no. that comes later I'm remembering the future i mean the, the, it, uh, unless you want to count unless you want to count the aside where she throws out and engraved on on, on cards uh, decorating the boudoir of 
women on three continents. Yeah. Now, or uh, she said, unless you uh, know her background her with yeah. him. Well, I mean, you if yeah, you he, go in the history here, actually, she was friends, but now it, isn't. It says, um, uh, now at thirty-six, he was famous as the richest man and the most spectacularly worthless playboy on earth yada, 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 when Francisco D'Ancona suddenly bought miles of bare mountains in Mexico, you know, the San Sebastian thing. So I think that ordering indicates that he had uh, gone into his playboy phase before the San Sebastian mines. No, no, I agree that it had, but I'm yeah. saying we don't know her relationship with him yeah. yet. In okay, the book. Other than she was close with him before and now she's not, like friends and not friends. We did see that go by. Okay. And why did she build it? Okay. Uh, yeah, that's basically it. It's like, why would she build this thing she opposed? Well, because she figured she could do it for less cost than anybody else would. She'd get it done and the bleeding would stop. Can, yeah. So it's going to yeah. happen. So I'll, I'll save the company by making it not so by bad. Making it happen in the, yeah. Well, it, it's kind of like conservatives trying to restore freedom by, you know, saying they'll make government work more efficiently. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, and at this point in, in the book, Dagny is really not thinking very deeply about the nature of her opposition. Um, you know, there's a, an interesting bit, um, uh, a little earlier, um, where it indicates, you know, Dagny knew nothing about the field of Washington ability or what such an ability implied, but it seemed to be necessary. So she dismissed it with the thought that there were many kinds of work, which are offensive yet necessary, such as cleaning sewers. Somebody had to do it and Jim seemed to like it. Yeah, it's a, it's a little <laughs> lady. Yeah, yes. you know, she, it, it's like she, she finds this stuff emotionally distasteful. It's not part of the world that she wants to live in. And so she dismisses it as this is not something that I need to pay attention to. You know, I can, I can compensate for whatever harm it causes because these people are so incompetent. Yeah. And, and what she said inside is that her excellence is what's, holding someone like Jim up, he wouldn't be in that position of power. Hmm. Yeah. It, it's like, it, yeah, it's like she, she puts in a huge amount of effort in order to, you know, make the San Sebastian line work. You know, she, she completes the construction, you know, she to, puts to make the in, whole railroad work. Yeah, she, she puts in a huge person. amount of effort to try and minimize the projected impact of the line's eventual nationalization. Um, you know, is which is roundly fun. condemned. Yeah, she, you know. uh, she's protecting the company, and he's coming down on her for it. Yeah, yeah. It it's like, yeah, you you kind of want to grab her and you know say why you know why why are you protecting him from the consequences of his own decisions? And I uh, maybe it's later in the chapter, but she actually questioned staying with the company in this chapter briefly yes yeah but then pushed it down again okay uh oh uh sideline here another question kind of drive it along uh why does she regret that she's an ancestor of nat taggart being a descendant yes, yes. the the wrong word was chosen <laughs> in this book i'm reading <laughs> you're correct <laughs> 
<sighs> well, because she was afraid that her she would be evaluated by blood rather than by ability. Yeah. I yeah, think the, the, no, no. Not, she wanted to to, yeah, to recognize him, uh, appreciate him I'm for not, what he is, not who, not how yeah. she's related to him. Yeah, I don't think it's it's not that she was afraid that other people would judge her as his descendant rather than on her own merits. Rather, it's that she she wants to love and admire him for his character and accomplishments. But because he is, I believe her, her grandfather, great grandfather. Um, uh, great, great, great grandfather. Because he is familial. Um, she feels like, you know, the, the earned admiration that she wants to give him gets mixed in with familial bond. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't, she doesn't want her relationship with him to be unchosen because if it's unchosen, then it has no significance. Yeah. That aspect wouldn't be earned. Okay. So speaking of that, I mean, in a slightly different form. Uh, now, the, the, the modern application I'm going to talk about, I think, postdates Diana's book. But this is on page 113. Um, the old theory of economic self-sufficiency has been exploded long ago. It is impossible for one country to prosper in the midst of a starving world. So there's 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 two modern references that I'd like to make to that. A anyone remember uh, Pocahontas's uh, "You didn't build that"? I thought that was uh, Obama. That was Obama. Nope, nope. Obama cribbed it from Pocahontas. Oh, really? She said it first. Yep. Pocahontas. <laughs> yeah, Pocahontas. I I I I I continue to denigrate her on that basis for the simple reason that. That was a choice on her she part. She deserves it. It was a sustained and choice. So she deserves it. Exactly. I, I still mourn the fact that we didn't have anybody uh, in Congress willing to propose or, or submit a, a bill um, a, a, you know, altering um, racial preference you know, and quota standards so that anybody who had the same degree of... Um, you know, racial admixed, <laughs> minority admixture that uh, Senator Warren had would qualify as that race for purposes of governmental preferences. Well, I think the standard <laughs> has been set now, and uh, anybody who might be in a position to be discriminated for or whatever under these circumstances, I think they should just automatically say, I'm a non-binary Native American. <laughs> yeah. But I just I wanted somebody to actually propose that in law because I'm almost <laughs> positive that Warren would have had to vote against it and it would have been hilarious watching her twist herself into a pretzel justifying why. Okay, that would be amusing. <laughs> She'd do it. Um and we would roll our eyes. <laughs> okay. Hey, uh, so why didn't Dagny actually aspire to be president since she wanted to run the railroad in place of Jim? And uh, why might her father not have chosen to make her president? 
Well, because the fact of the matter is, is that most in most businesses, the CEO is a political uh, position. It, it deals more with people and their opinions than with the facts on the ground. Uh, that's why she was vice president of operations because that's. And she left the distasteful. She was things, running the railroad. Uh, the unpleasant, distasteful things to Jim, and in that era, there was also some sexism. Yeah, I mean, here's here, a here's a, a question: um, What's the difference between Dagny and Reardon on this point? Because Reardon is obviously very interested in, you know, being the the complete head of all of his companies. You know, true, but he's, he's kind of setting aside the political stuff. He's not paying attention to his man in Washington. Also true, but it's a nevertheless, thing that he's you know it's it's like Reardon has no interest in um, you know having a um, you know a CEO and he just runs the steel mill. Yeah, no, no boss or leader above him at all. Yeah, yeah, hmm. and, and and his um, well, the, the the difference is is that Reardon is entirely self-made. Whereas Dagny is joining something that had pre-existed her. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, it just, it seems like an interesting difference between the two because it's not just like... Um, Do you think there's a subtle commentary on male-female dynamics in there from Rand? <sighs> Interesting question. I'm not sure. You you mean like the uh, you know why no rational woman would want to be president kind of thing? Yeah, something around in that area, maybe. I don't know. I've never quite understood that yeah. position, so I can't really comment on it. Yeah, um, and I mean the the sentence is she had never aspired to the presidency. The operating department was her only concern. So that so doesn't that is running the railroad. That's yeah, true. it's like she she's really focused, you know, like a laser on running the railroad and running trains. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, is not okay. interested in in the rest of it. And I mean, there are presumably other aspects of you know running the railroad legitimately, um, you know, outside of the operating department. You know, that mm -hmm. she's not interested in. So maybe personal preference. Yeah. Um, interesting sideline is that the uh, the major investors in the uh, Francisco uh, Francisco's uh, San Sebastian mines um, wasn't it basically all of these power players begging to be in secondhand on his uh, his financial genius. Mm -hmm. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, okay. And yeah. I, oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I think it's it's interesting with the if you look at the arguments that the board was presenting for um <clears throat> for why they need to make the San Sebastian mines. Um it's uh you know that they, they have uh they have the duty to you know, in effect, help the underprivileged to develop. Um, 
Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, the Mexicans are a very diligent people. You know, how can they become uh, industrialized if nobody lends them a hand? Um, yeah. You know, and um, I find, yeah, and, and I find myself asking the question, you know, why doesn't Colorado qualify? Uh, racism? Don't you know. Because know. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it's like they do talk about, you know, you know, the future importance of trade with Mexico, you know, the rich stream of freight, the large revenues assured, you know, to the carrier of an inexhaustible supply of copper. Uh, but they are not at all impressed about the importance of trade with Colorado and its rich stream of freight or the revenues assured to the carrier of an inexhaustible supply of oil. Well, I, I think what it comes down to is the same mindset you see today. And what Rand, uh, I, don't, I don't remember, you probably do, Kyle, uh, where she talks about why it is that the West is supposed to uh, idolize the primitive because it has nothing to offer and why they should be willing to sacrifice their uneaten young men because they do. So they know that Mexico has nothing to offer. They know that Colorado has something to offer, and it's that moral inversion that's going on here. I probably butchered the hell out of that quote, but I think you know where I'm what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, it seems mm -hmm. pretty clear that the arguments that carry the day with the board are the moral arguments and not the practical ones. Yes, but notice how they use the practical arguments as, as a kind of a fallback. In other words, they're supposed to be looking out for the fiscal uh, well-being of the railroad. So they, they throw those in there, but you're right. The things that are convincing them are not the practical arguments. They're the moral arguments, and the moral arguments run exactly counter to the practical arguments. It, it feels like the kind of uh, falling down on fiduciary duty that we see in a lot of cases today, where it's just like this is this is absolutely not what your job is. Yeah, yeah. It's also you know, unsurprisingly, um, implicitly Marxian economics. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the the way that you make a people productive is by you know, in effect giving them the tools you know yeah. it's all about your relation to capital um <laughs> where does it come from oh it's just you know, here it, yeah it, it's funny because you know people would look at something like this and say oh there's no way that an american corporation would do this i'm sitting there going uh yeah actually I can give you a concrete instance. Boeing. Actually, I, I can give you what I think is an even Every better. Every DEI department. I, I can give you an even better instance, I think, of you know, the Marxian idea that a person's talent is determined by their relationship to capital. Okay. Um, look at the way Disney picks film directors. Uh, Oh, it's almost as if they want the film director that will do the most damage to their bottom well, line. You've got to wonder. But, <laughs> you know, I look at that and I find myself, you know, wondering, you know, 
they're picking people who have no real significant experience making large scale, you know, movies. And they're giving, they're, they're giving them these two, $300 million film projects. And the only way I can make sense of that is if they really seriously think that what makes a person a talented film director is their relationship to the capital infrastructure of filmmaking. Yeah, if you give them enough you, money, then they'll you, be good. You take a person and you put them in the right you know, job role and you give them the capital and you give them the equipment and that's what makes them a great film director. On, on the other hand, I heard... Uh, one of the funnier quasi-conspiracy theories out there that the reason that uh, Disney is busy uh, burning billions of dollars worth of, of cash is to uh, reduce the impact of, uh, of, of, of the Fed's inflationary policy. <laughs> <clears throat> so they're doing it for us. Oh, sure. There you go. We should be grateful. we should be grateful. <laughs> yeah, go bankrupt faster, guys. You're not helping yet. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. You need to hurry this hurry process up. along. <laughs> I mean, it it sounds crazy. You you say it, uh, but you know, I I look at their behavior in in picking these people, and you know, it's like, wow, you know that. It, it isn't how I would risk almost yeah, but a half a billion it, it's dollars like, or a quarter It would million. explain their observed behavior. It really would. Hmm. What was the most recent one? It was oh, an, like, a, a, a talented indie documentary maker. Yeah. Uh, yeah Small. Yeah, the, the one that they picked to do the... Um, uh, the the new Jedi order film. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's not documentary ish. And it's vastly greater scale. Why, why would they do this? Yeah. I mean, she's also, you know, a very left-wing political activist who's quite overt about putting her activism into all of her films. I'm sure they adore that part. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have to, uh, what, what's the, what's the line from South Park? Put some chicks in it and make them super gay. Yeah. yeah make, make gay and lame. <laughs> um, I mean, in a sense, I think some of the stuff she's been criticized over, I think, is dropping a bit of relevant context. Yeah. Um, um, she, by all accounts, she did really good activism uh, overseas where it was actually needed. So, yes. OK. And like she she took a lot of heat for you know, a statement she made you know, a long time ago about how, you know, she tries in all of her films to make men feel uncomfortable which sounds yeah, pretty bad until yeah, you realize that at good. the time yeah. and the context she's talking about, the kinds of men she was talking about are like the kind of men who do Pakistani honor killings. Yeah. And it, it was a completely fine statement for yeah, what and, she was and, saying. Yeah. And inside of that context, I have to say, frankly, you know, if, you know, if those are the men that you're targeting, then yeah, I kind of think they should feel uncomfortable too. I'm in your camp. Um, yeah, the question is: is how effective toward that end is anything? And uh, I mean, you're talking about centuries of culture here. Yeah, you know, my um, point is that you know, for all that I suspect that I, you know, would not like the woman, and she wouldn't like me if we were to talk. I think that particular criticism of her is not entirely fair. 
No. No, no, I agree with you. I, I mean, it's... it's... And, you know, it, it's like, from what I've heard of her documentary work, she was, um, you know, exposing some things that desperately need to be exposed and, you know, is angry about things that people absolutely should be angry about. So... And see, I, I, would, I think I'd go one better on, on, on that front, though. See, I don't care if they're made uncomfortable, except to the extent that a noose makes one uncomfortable when you drop. Yeah. People who kill on that basis are irredeemable and should be treated as the savages that they really are. Huh. And this idea that there can be some sort of rapprochement between Western culture and that I, I, I go back to uh, the, the, the what is it the British uh, Governor General of uh, India, yes. uh, yeah, uh, and his you, yeah. impression of sati. Yeah, you, you set up your uh, your pyre, and we will set up our gallows, and you may practice your culture, and we will practice ours. <laughs> yeah, I think that is the only appropriate uh, response to that kind of behavior. But. Yeah. Once again, this is cultural. Um, the sad fact of the matter is, is that the person that taught those men that it was acceptable to do that were their mothers. It is a brutal knot to untangle. Um, yeah. But to the extent that it is a cultural problem, the only way it can be unknotted is over a long period of cultural pressure. And... To the extent that uh, Obeid Shinoy, I think that's her name, um, is uh, supplying some of that pressure, good honor. Then she's doing good honor. Yeah, she's doing good work. Yes, agreed. None of this has much of anything to do with the book we're nominally talking about. But... Not so much. Well, well that's so... true, but I mean... <laughs> the... we, we're, 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 we're indulging in the, in the process of exegesis. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things about the book is the way that, you know, you read it and it, it sparks off these kinds of uh, digressions. Yeah, well, it's hard yeah. not to relate it because to it's... the current world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of which, here's something that may not have aged all that well. Um, the symbolic meaning of uh, a cigarette mm. that goes by. What do you guys think, think of that? I, I, for me, it was well, just it's a very like, nice yeah, image. Yeah, okay, doesn't. It's a very nice image. Yeah. Um, I, I, I appreciate and... where you're going with it, but it didn't resonate that well with me. <laughs> because of well, it did, it, the negative effects. It... Yeah, very negative effects. It killed my mother. So yeah, hard not to. Well, and arguably killed killed Rand herself. Oh yeah. Hmm. Yes. So yeah. that's what she asked for there. But, um, but then again, so what would you, what, what, how would you, is there something else that you could see uh, that is, that is, that was as widespread at the time? No, I, I think it was, that a would have clever, the same imagery. It was a very clever, um, yeah. symbolic well, meaning she drew from it. Yeah. It's just I mean, unfortunate. It, well, and it fits into the, the broader recurring imagery of um, light and, you know, darkness and, you know, twilight and dawn. Um, mm -hmm. 
that runs through the novel or, or has at least been recurring through the part of it we've and read the, so the far. The of the mind, control of nature, all of that. Is, yeah, all, all of this yeah. stuff. I mean, you know, it, it's like she's, she's drawing these links between, you know, light, you know, the sun, energy, productivity, thought. Controlling life. fire. Yeah, all of yeah. that. You know, all, yeah. all of this stuff, yeah. right? I mean, it, it's all... Which you know, it, I, I, I appreciate it, It's all, all the that. Promethean myth playing out. Yeah. Okay. And, and the idea that it she could be mass manufactured. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's she is definitely referencing Prometheus. It's perfectly fitting. It just uh, it went by, and I was like, yeah. So so Greg, try this on for size. What would happen if we came up with a vaccine for lung cancer? Would that reverse your position? It wouldn't be fire. Oh, it, to, you mean, would use... cigarettes become okay again? Yeah, oh. would, would cigarettes be okay? Would the symbology be would, oh. would the symbology be restored if there wasn't the underlying health if they, issue? If, yeah, if, if another advance obviated that, if they invented that. vaping where it didn't absolutely destroy your lungs, it, yeah, it'd be okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but you would need you. But to get the fire aspect of it, you'd have to basically have some kind of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a rough one. ignition going on. Yeah. I guess the uh, the modern equivalent of that would be something like staring at a smartphone screen. Uh, no, because you some some point in time we're going to find out it causes eye cancer. Well, I was just thinking about you know something you know I like you know smartphones, Miss Taggart. I like to think of you know light held in a man's hand. Uh, no, I see what you're saying. Okay, so it has to, it, it, it's it's a supercomputer in your on your. It's a supercomputer in the palm of your hand, connected to all of the knowledge, you know, that mankind yeah. has developed. Augmenting our thinking ability anywhere in the world. Memory, yeah, yeah. It, it would be that kind of thing. That would be. That's probably what she would have worked with if she were pulling uh, for the same kind. And of thing. we use it, and we use this device to look at pictures of cats. Yeah. Which she would have yeah, loved because she was a cat fancier. We love cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's funny. Yeah. Um, but you know, well, and, and, if, and, if you want something else that kind of fits into the imagery, that's probably that's the not best a modern gig. analogy. All right. So, and if you notice at concerts, instead of using cigarette lighters during the important parts of the song, they now hold up their they wave smartphone. Yeah, they wave their. Um, their smartphones with uh, they they turn on the the flash and wave that which is it's a cool effect thousands of them in everybody's pockets all right yeah final section eddie willers eats dinner in the in the taggart cafeteria with an unknown railroad worker i remember the first time i read this and i was told hey you know what everybody who's important you know their name and i was looking at this scene and going well ah. this guy <laughs> seems to be important but i don't know his name huh Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> His name is plastered all over everything, but I didn't know it. I was just like, well, it, this guy kind of breaks the... It was Gary who said that to uh, our, our friend. He was like, oh, yeah, just keep in mind that every, every important character, you need to... There's a cast of hundreds. Um, if you're told a name, they're probably important. And if they are important, they're, you're going to be told a name. So just pay attention. And I'm looking at this guy going, well, he kind of seems like this is important, but I don't know his name. Hmm. All right, so uh, what information about himself, the railroad, and Dagny is Eddie revealing to the uh, unknown worker? Um, 
the most obvious thing that comes to my mind is he's revealed uh, that um, McNamara is very important. Yeah, I, uh, like any of the workings of uh, building the lines, oh, Kellogg, I believe he, he would have been told about that. Um, yeah, that we don't know. Inexplicably um, would not take the gig. It's like, oh, okay, you're going and you won't say why. Huh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what's really been told here is, you know, the railroad is in trouble because, you know, we desperately need to repair the Rio Norte line. You know, we have found, you know, a person uh, who is capable of repairing the Rio Norte yeah. line. And this is we who have it a is. Contractor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Valuable stuff. Also, he uh, he gave away. Um, uh, Dagny's taste in music and her mm -hmm. dating scene. <laughs> and the importance of motive power. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Let's see. Um, yeah. Which I think even even Jim is aware of. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Where was that line? Yeah, and, and of course, looking back at it, when, when he says, God, do we need the motive power? Can You can't imagine how important that is. That's the heart of everything. Yeah. What, what are you smiling at? Yeah, I was like, did, didn't Galt laugh at yeah. that point or something? Yeah. Or, sorry, didn't the worker laugh at that point? Because, well, because he understands, but his, his version of motive power is a little different from what, yeah. what, what, what Eddie Willers is talking about here. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's really a lot of parallel themes that kind of start in that conversation that kind of continue for a long time. So yeah, I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to keep it spoiler free yeah, here. Uh, I don't, I don't trying really hard. Uh, you heard me just mess up a little. Maybe I'll edit that out. Um, bad Greg, no donut. Bad Greg. Yeah. It was just automatic. Um, yeah. Well, and, <laughs> And I kind of gave away a little bit of it here too. I mean, we, 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 well, we just gave, well, I guess we haven't, I guess I gave it away. No, I guess I didn't. I didn't actually say the name. I, no, so I, I heard, didn't give it away. It was on me. I haven't heard, <laughs> I haven't heard too many direct spoilers. So, I mean, everybody's well behaved so far. Okay. Well, good on us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, all right. So let's see. Uh, that's, I think we've chewed on basically all of it. We've gotten to sort of the length we've been shooting for, uh, or hitting with these chapters, eh, an hour, a little more than an hour, uh, to wrap it up. Does somebody want to, uh, again, talk about the significance of the title of the chapter, the top and the bottom. I mean, didn't we talk about that at well, the beginning? I think we opened with it. Yeah. Yeah. We need to talk about it at the end. It's a book in Good the point. Point. <laughs> It's it, it's happened twice now. We need to yeah, got to keep the pattern up. Well, so so basically, you've got the inversion of of top for bottom at the beginning, and at the end, you have the inversion of the people that are actually making things happen at the literal bottom. Yeah, and and this is so um, one, once again. Yeah. So it's a little and more. Complex he's opening and closing. Chapters, yeah. But I, I think we're definitely following Kyle's. Uh, pattern of 
there's there's always a concrete being referred to and an abstract uh, understanding of it as well. And in this case, she's confounding it with uh, contradictions built into each of them. Right, and the the under underground cafeteria is very light and bright, and the and the penthouse, the room up there is very dark. And the people on yeah. the top of the world are really the bottom dwelling scum. The people at the bottom are really the ones at the pinnacle. Yeah, and if you if you if you think about it, there's also a subversion in here of the uh, of the time machine, the Eloy and the Morlocks. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like the 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 uh, the productive people who live underground are you know the Morlocks, but in in this case they're good. Oh yes, and the cannibals are the ones that are living above ground. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, with that, uh, uh, we'll, let's call this episode done. We can switch yeah, to I our think... rat holing. And, yeah, like uh, once 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 we get to cannibalism, I think we're done.